Hello and welcome to Digital Surfing with Darren Smith, the podcast that dives into digital leaders' success and failures as they ride the wave of a career in digital business. Introducing our host, Darren Smith. Hi, I'm your host, Darren Smith, and every episode I'll be chatting to a special interviewee on what they've learned on their digital journey. Digital transformation and maturity is key to surviving in business today, and many people have a host of stories to tell about the successes and failures of digital projects they've been involved with. Let's go digital surfing. My guest this week is Alice O'Farrell, Global Head of Digital Communications at Lafarge Wholesome, a world leader in sustainable and innovative building solutions based in Switzerland. Alice has over 20 years of marketing experience with posts at Ogilvy and only recently moved from the Global Head of Digital at WWF, where she led digital projects across their 90 operating countries. Let's get into this chat with Alice. Alice, it's great having you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. All right. So I want to get started with your kind of background. So you spent seven years at WWF, not the fighters. Um, Panthers, uh, not wrestlers. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, everybody knows that brand. It's huge. It's uh, all about sustainability, saving the planet, that type of thing. And, uh, and you've recently made the switch to Lafarge Wholesome, which probably has the complete opposite brand image. What is the story behind that move? Yeah, lots of people have asked me that. So yeah, I loved my time at WWF, but I actually got contacted by the guys at Lafarge Holstein. So the, the company is in the building materials industry. Bill Gates recently said that the, the built environment is, is probably responsible for about 6% of global carbon emissions. So when I got contacted, I thought there was a huge opportunity because at WWF, we work a lot with businesses on trying to transform business to help, you know, reduce their carbon footprint to be better actors in the world. But we're very small voice, actually. You know, there are a lot of bigger players and it's so hard to move the needle. Um, so seeing an opportunity to actually make change from the inside and at Lafarge Hall Sim, we're all about being the leaders in innovative and sustainable building solutions. And, you know, as the global urbanization continues and um, the global population continues to grow, we need to actually build kind of the size of New York every month for the next 20 years. And if we don't do that sustainably and we don't do that responsibly and we don't apply the circular economy, quite frankly, there's not going to be a planet for nine billion people to live on. So I really feel there's an urgency now. We have got to start changing our ways. And if big business can, can drive that, then we are really going to see the change that we need for future generations. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, a question I've been asked, wanting to ask for quite a while is, so you're in digital, you're in social. I think you've got a, a more holistic role now in, in, in communications. But, you know, th- th- there's, a, there's a perception, right or wrong, that if you go digital, that is more sustainable, less paper, that that type of thing. I mean, like, but then you are also, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, more iPads, more cell phones, more computers. That's plastic. That's chips. Is do you have any insight? Is digital kind of a pro-sustainable kind of medium versus the old school kind of communications mediums? I mean, I'd say what what it's all about is is less waste. 
So whatever you're doing, just try and be as efficient as possible. Try and be as sustainable as possible and just avoid waste. Don't buy things you don't need. Try and reuse, recycle. And that's really the way forward. Whatever the medium, I think it just has to be applied across the board. Very simple message, less waste. Very cool. So I want to get to know you a little bit more personally. So you completed the Brighton Marathon in 2017 for Team Panda. And have you, have you, have you always been a runner? Um, no. <laughs> I don't know what, why on earth I did it. Well, I do actually. So Team Panda is fantastic. It's part of the UK WWF um, because I moved then from UK to international. So we've got like 90 offices all around the world. But when I was at the UK, I was in the public engagement team and we'd go and cheer on our, our pandas. So whether they were doing cycling or or 10Ks or marathons. And in 2015, I went down to support the guys at the Brighton Marathon and I was so inspired. Um, I thought, okay, I'll sign up for the 10K in 2016 because they do two different lengths of run. I mean, you know, 10K to 44K, it's quite a big difference, but there you are. So in 2016, I ran the 10K and yeah, it just, that it gave me, if I can do that, why can't I do the full marathon? So I then just spent that year training, um, doing sort of half marathons and then um, did the full one, raised loads of money. It was a boiling hot day, having trained all throughout the summer, uh, all throughout the winter. So that was a bit um, a bit of a shock, but I really enjoyed it and I haven't run since. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, like in, in the environment that you're in, it's high stress. You know, a lot of people use stuff like running to, to deal with stress. How's, what, what are you using some other mechanism? It's, I mean, it is about getting into nature. So I found with marathon training, it was a lot of road running and I would go out into the woods and things, but I actually found that um, I just prefer going for long walks. It's a lot better for your, you know, impact reduction and, I was chatting to my dad, he's a big walker and he's brought me up in that way. And some of my uncles and, and other of his friends who are runners, now they're in their 70s, they're having real problems with their hips and you know and knee joints and things. And my dad is fit as a fiddle. And I honestly think it's due to, you know, get a good pair of walking shoes and just go out in nature and, and be kind to, to your body rather than, you know, hammering it on um, on roads. I know you could do trail running, but obviously I'm just a bit of a a wimp <laughs> <laughs> no fair enough uh yeah i mean like i actually I, I started running about a year and a half ago and i tried cycling as well but I, I, yeah i mean like i suppose it's similar between walking and running you know i found when i was cycling it was i was just going too fast to take in what's around you at least running i'm a bit slower um i suppose walking would be would be even better yeah <laughs> so so you know talking about stress and dealing with stress one of the things that i learned uh, in in prep for the interview today was um uh, you do come from agency side so you worked at ogilvy on a very exciting uh, kind of adobe creative cloud launch and this is where you kind of experience burnout i think for the first time uh and you know my question is is you know what is it about agencies that you kind of almost associate burnout with agencies yeah it's really it was such an interesting and you know quite hellish experience in lots of ways because I had been client side before and um and I was getting left behind and it was sort of the end of the 2000s so 
around 2010 my boss didn't want to embrace social media and I thought I've got to I've got to you know jump on the, the social media and digital bandwagon so I, I actually went around approaching agencies and because I've worked with agencies before I thought well I know what this is all about and I think I, I think that you you know in our world you fall into you know one or the other my husband actually owns and runs a, a digital transformation agency Kayan and he is you know through and through an agency person really knows how to manage lots of different projects and teams and people and I I manage lots of projects and teams and people but there's something about just ha- like having that that laser focus on your message and taking your brand forward and I, I find that I can put all my energy into that and when I was being kind of pulled across lots of different clients and different needs I think that's probably you know what what did it and I think what I try and avoid is I mean some of our clients I'm not going to mention names because it's no one that we've talked about but they could be very rude you know on email and I think they just forget that you're a person you're a resource when you're an agency so I fundamentally avoid any anything like that but I guess it's that dehumanization of having a computer between people or that's how road rage happens because you've got a, a car when you have some sort of mechanical device it it strips out the humanity and so I think we were doing a lot of stuff on email you know 10 years ago we didn't have the same sort of chat you know you get 100 emails in an hour and it's like well how should I prioritize this <laughs> so I don't know that's you know that's probably a a simple answer to it but I'm sure it's much more complex and you know you obviously have a very deep passion for sustainability from you know being WWF what you're doing now I mean like uh, you know talking about just reducing reusing that type of thing now what I we run an agency as well and um, you know what I've seen is certain clients you get assigned to that client, but you may not necessarily believe in what they stand for. How do people deal with that? That's a really good insight. I think I think that's that mismatch of values was something that really did affect my sort of mental health and really accelerated the burnout. So I think that's a, a really good point. And I guess you know, quite a few people came from agency side to WWF and said the same thing. But I just, even though I'm really busy, even though I'm really stressed, at least I feel like I'm making a difference. Um, I'm not just adding, you know, pounds to shareholders' pockets or whatever it might be. And I think, you know, now I work for a huge, you know, multi-billion euro turnover organisation a year, but we can make this big difference. And we're on that journey for net zero carbon by 2050. And we've got our underpinned with our science-based targets um, and so that's that's why I feel that I can handle the stress. But I think it's a really good point that mismatch of values, and I I don't know how how people do deal with that. Maybe they just switch off from it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've seen you know people assigned alcohol brands or cigarette brands or something like that that they fundamentally don't believe in, and they find it really really difficult. Um, but yeah, staying on the topic of agencies, so. 
as much as you've had yeah some typical agency experiences it sounds like you have found an agency that you absolutely love in tug um so you're working with them at, at wwf you've now kind of retained them at uh, lafarge wholesome you spoke about kind of running really cool kind of campaigns getting to kind of two million signatures on, on on a petition that type of thing but what is it what is it about tug that uh, that's that's got you loving them yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I think when you find an agency that you really like, or, or perhaps, you know, vice versa, if you're an agency, you find a client that you really get on with, it just makes life so much more easy. And there's lots of things. I mean, you know, they were part of a, a pitch process when I was at WWF International. They were head and shoulders above, you know, um, the other agencies. It was very hard at the time, actually, to find a social media agency. Tug do a lot more than that. But what I really needed was the community management, the social listening, the content creation, having a finger on the pulse of the ever-changing digital landscape, you know, big tech companies, changing algorithms, everything we know. And these guys just, they had all of that and more. And they just, I just trust them. We have a really good relationship with the guys I work with. They're a good size. They've got offices in Toronto, London, Berlin and Sydney. So you've kind of, that's important to me to feel that you're not working people really hard because you're working people in their own time zones and they can do those sorts of handovers. So I, I think that the issue is whatever you, you know, B2C or B2B, I always say we're P2P, it's person to person. And those personal relationships that you have between clients and, and agencies is really key so if anyone at Tug's listening, don't leave. <laughs> so you you were on the receiving end of clients that had unreasonable requests. Yeah, I've, I've certainly, um, I'm not I've given those unreasonable requests when I was client size. Like uh, I need a new radio ad by Monday morning and it's now Friday 5 p.m. Uh, and I'm on the receiving end now. You know, you you went through that stage of burnout at Ogilvy. Like, do you have a way of, of now working with Tug that actually is a healthy, I suppose, I'm going to use the word sustainable, kind of approach? Well, I think so. I mean, maybe you should get them. One, <laughs> Emily Knox is their head of content and social, so maybe she could tell you. But, um, yeah, I think that we do. Um, we have, you know, regular update meetings. We always check in with each other. How's, how's the cadence of the work? How's the... Um, workload have we got the right people on the right um, things am I sending too many emails let's you know dial down the whatsapp group to give people more space there's lots of things like that but I think the most important one is to be able to have open honest conversations and know that we've got each other's backs if something isn't working don't wait don't stew on it come and tell me straight away um, and we'll figure a way around it and I think one of the most important things for me is I'm really the gatekeeper of the relationship because what I found, you know, I opened them up, they were wowing my colleagues, other teams were getting in touch with them and things started to fall down because not everybody knows how to work with agencies. And that's when, you know, two rounds of amends that have been budgeted for suddenly creeps into five, creeps to 10. And it's very hard then, you know, particularly working in the NGO world, agencies to say 
look, you know, we're actually losing money on you as a client. And, and a lot of clients say people really don't understand the mechanics of that and, you know, that we all need to make money. Otherwise, your agency is going to go out of business and you're not going to have anyone to do your work for you. So, yeah, being open, honest, transparent, bringing things up as they happen, but also being proactive in terms of looking for solutions like Airtable. We're just sort of... Um, going to start using this just happened in the last couple of weeks for instead of um, Trello which I think is going to make everyone's life easier and um, we can roll that out and I think the the last thing is just really understanding what it's like on both sides because I spoke about Emily before and I said to her it's really important for clients to remember that you're not an agency's only client and she said to me when she was starting out in agency side, her boss said, don't forget that you're not the only work that is being delivered to your client. So I really like that. And I hadn't thought about it from that point of view, that agencies need to remember that it's probably about 10% of the work that's going across my desk is coming to you. So let's just be kind and, and remember that, you know, we've got other, other priorities, but just to keep open about that. So many sound bites there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it goes the other way as well. You know, I've certainly experienced where I think some, some clients think that, that you're only working on their account. So, you know, you can't respond immediately to every single thing that they ask. So, yeah, uh, lots, of, lots of great insights there about, about working with agencies. Now, I want to dial into that uh, campaign that you ran with the 2 million signatures. Tell me a little bit about that campaign. Yeah, so this is a campaign at WF International to stop plastics entering our oceans. I think we know the big stat that by 2050, there could be more plastic by weight than fish in the oceans. So it was all sort of driven around these microplastics. It's getting into our food systems and our water systems. So we wanted to go to the UN and ask for a global treaty so that all heads of state globally would sign up to this treaty. So there's lots of different moving parts. You know, we've got people who are um, lobbying the UN. We've got um, people advocating, you know, with their local governments and ministers across country. But at a global level, at international, we needed to show that there was an appetite for this. That you know, there was a real desire from everybody around the world to stop this because we're the voters, we're the consumers. We need to really put our money where our mouth is and demand uh, change. So we wanted to kind of figure out a way, how could we, if people are looking at our social media, they want to see cute animals. They want to see iconic flora and fauna and we can't let them down, but equally that's not going to get our message across. So Tug uh, came up with this really good strategy called the golden thread. And you take people from awe to awareness to action so an example of that for the um, Global Plastics campaign would be, say, a breaching humpback whale, you know, absolutely awe-inspiring, and it's fascinating. And then you go to the next post, and that's where the awareness is. So it might be a picture of, you know, lots of, or a video of lots of plastic in the oceans, or maybe, you know, um, animals caught in, marine animals caught in ghost nets or something, which is discarded fishing gear. So you make them aware of, you know, the impacts on these beautiful animals that you've just seen. And then you take them to action. So that's, but you can do something about this. You know, you felt 
love for our natural world. You felt shock at the state that we're, you know, leaving the world. <laughs> uh, but now you can take action. And I think a lot of that came out of research that people felt quite helpless when, you know, you'd see a cute picture of an animal. And then the next time you look at social media, you see the horrific habitat in which they live. What, what am I supposed to think and feel and do from that? So it's a very clever strategy. And I think it can be applied across all sorts of different campaigns as well. It's also about the authenticity that is being demanded from everybody now on social media, you know, rejection of perfection, not wanting to see filters, really wanting to understand the issues and then being able to feel like, you know, we're making a difference at an individual level. And to get to kind of 2 million signatures, can you do that in entirely organically and with a viral impact or do you have to put paid spend behind that to actually get it to spread? Yeah, really good question. So it was a mixture. One of the main things is having some of our larger country offices on board. So, you know, they've all got their own budgets and their own campaigns running locally. However, lots of countries got behind this. So we were able then to um, very much take advantage of the different budgets from different countries to push push the petition because we don't have very big budgets or we didn't have one us um, at WWF. But also there is a, a virality to it. People want to share. We make it very easy to share. And we used this sort of plugin called Slide, Z-L-Y-D-E, and that allows us to have a global petition which localizes according to IP address. So like anything, it's not 100% accurate, but you should get served up your local petition um, when you click on any of those links. So that was really hugely beneficial in us selling in our global campaign to our, our country level offices. Very cool. Okay, that makes sense. So I want to take us back a little bit to we're staying on, on, on the topic of social media, but almost, I suppose, uh, a bit of time travel. So when you started in social media, you, I'm like, you said that one of the reasons you moved to Ogilvy was because you wanted to get involved in social media. But you mentioned that, you know, posting to Instagram wasn't easy like it is now, right? Like a lot of people that are in social media only started when it was easy. So what did you have to do before? Oh, wow. Yeah, this takes me back. So, I mean, I've been working for about 20 years now. So digital didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. And so, you know, I, I think I got in pretty much at the beginning, really, when businesses were starting to look at, at social. But um, this is taking us back seven years. Instagram had launched. It was really popular with a small group of photographers. And Facebook hadn't bought it yet, I don't believe. Um, they might have just bought it in 2014. I should have checked that. But it was really, really difficult to get images that you hadn't taken yourself. So Instagram, you'd, you know, take a photo and it was on there. But if you wanted to upload, you know, like we had a whole asset bank of images and I, we didn't have any resource. And I was like, we have to be on Instagram. What's going on? It's really taking off. So I would have to email myself pictures from our asset bank to my personal email I would then have to get my email up on my phone take a screenshot of the picture in the email and then take a photo of it <laughs> fun absolutely so much fun <laughs> but then I proved it's worth we got some resource and Instagram improved uh because you can understand why like it took them ages 
you still can't upload photos from the web app, I don't think. They wanted it to be a real life, authentic, I'm taking a picture in the moment. You know, mm. scheduling came really late. It's all about, and I and I like that. I like that, that they were being true to, you know, the, the whole ethos of what Instagram was supposed to be. Mm. But of course, then when brands want to get involved, they're not going to monetize. And, you know, that was a real game changer for brands on Instagram because otherwise, you know, before it was just a lot of perseverance and patience. I remember actually searching for a piece of software that could manage Instagram, another piece of software that could also manage LinkedIn and in particular LinkedIn groups. I was in business to business and, you know, the likes of Hootsuite and so on could do Twitter, they could do Facebook updates, but they couldn't yet do some of the others. Um, now, you, you ended up rolling out Hootsuite. Like what came into the selection criteria when you rolled that out? Yeah, not using Google Sheets, I guess. <laughs> Um, again, it was yeah pretty shonky. Just people sort of putting a content calendar together in in a Google Sheet, and then you didn't know what had been posted and everything else. So the selection criteria, again, was some, something. And this was pre Cambridge Analytica, right? So the APIs were all open, things were different. But it was really about having a scheduling platform which also had uh, a content library or asset library and then that also you could have you know lots of seats and there was collaboration and I found at the time and again this is probably in 2015 that Hootsuite was the best option and I think there are better options now just because as you say they relied very heavily on their um, relationship with Facebook and after the Cambridge Analytica scandal really had a huge effect on what impact on how much data Facebook could allow sort of third-party suppliers to access. So at the moment, um, you know, I, I think sometimes just doing things natively is really is, is really good because you're in the platform and you're getting that experience. I'm waiting. I, I mean, I think there's a bit of a gap in the market, to be honest, for a new social media software to really help social media managers. I mean, it's been a while since I've been actually doing the social media management but I just still feel that because all the tech companies are in competition with each other they're they're going to approach um, how they offer their data and access to their APIs in a different way so it's so hard to find one holistic platform and so maybe that's the way forward that you have something that does as much as you can with you've got to pick your channels what's your content strategy is your audience where they hang out therefore uh, who's the best sort of software to to make my team's life easier. <laughs> so talking about your team and kind of possibly having to post kind of natively in that rollout of Hootsuite, you had quite a bit of resistance to its adoption. Uh, why was that? I think change management is um, historically difficult. There were quite a few people that we, we ran an out of hours wrote us every week. One of us would um, be available like liking and community management in the evenings and people had just got very used to doing that. You know, they'd be in Facebook on their own Facebook, and then you just swap to the company page. Likewise for Twitter, it was really only those two main channels at the time. And then we sort of brought in Instagram. But, and we had four different Facebook pages. So that's why we really needed a, you know, some sort of social media management system. And a lot of the time, you know, people would be liking things from their personal account or commenting 
from a, a organization account on their personal things it was just a real it was a mess and it was a risk you know so I, I wanted to bring this in but the issue was for a lot of people was that this is the way I do it you're asking me to work out of hours if I'm in the Facebook environment I want to be in the Facebook environment not a Hootsuite environment or another supplier so um, I really understood that change and I could have managed it better so I didn't really take into account you know I was just thinking of it at work I wasn't taking into account that a lot of people were only really accessing our organizational social media in their evenings and weekends and so change is hard to manage in working hours it's a lot harder when you know people are are doing things you know you'd obviously get paid for it but not a huge amount especially not in the NGO world um so I think I should have brought people on earlier um should have had more workshops more discussions that kind of consensus approach of bringing people on board and then everyone can air their views and I know that I'm going to make a decision but I can make a better decision and also understand who are the warm people who are the cold people who are the arctic temperature people um, and then I can manage my communication to those different colleagues in a different way just like we would push different communications to different audience groups in in our working lives externally we should absolutely apply it internally to our our brilliant colleagues so that was a big lesson for me i think that's a really good tip to categorize your your colleagues into into different categories like i'm in sales so i do that right now on any deal this is our influencer this is our detractor this is the champion but i've never thought of it that way in terms of change management and actually kind of when you're rolling out a big digital project to actually kind of categorize uh, the, the, the team and, 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 you know, you can, in that way, you can use the champions, I suppose, to influence the detractors as opposed to just trying to do it all, all yourself. Exactly. Delegation is the best. That's another, another good lesson, how to delegate, how to trust people and just um, be, be more focused on, on what you're doing as an individual. But yeah, if you've got those different audience groups with your colleagues, they can do that heavy lifting for you. Absolutely. Okay, so you spoke about person to person a few minutes ago. And I'm going to make an assumption, maybe I'm completely wrong. But, you know, taking, going from the WWF environment, that's quite a B2C environment, although you do need to influence businesses as you as you mentioned and switching to Lafarge Wholesome is quite a business to business environment how's your approach going to change if I'm even right um, in, in my assumption no, no you are absolutely right but I guess my approach that whether you're a business or an NGO or whatever brand you work for you know your people represent you and whoever your audience is whether it's architects um, who are specifying buildings whether it's um, city planners or you know who's going to build the the next green city which is sustainable and fully circular those are people so I think that's why the transition has been so easy because it's just about understanding people and what the message is and how we can help and I think I'm amazed and I would never have thought there's so many similarities to my role at WWF and my role now at the Farge Holcim we work with the World Economic Forum. We're, you know, pitching stories to Bloomberg. We're working with business and governments to improve sustainability and reduce carbon. Um, 
and, and it's all about really the job for me is to I mean I just had my strategy signed off so I'm very excited is to become the leading voice for innovation and sustainability in the um, building materials industry but we've also got to dignify cement and everything that comes with it I mean we're surrounded by buildings there's beauty in the built environment and um, our industry for you know rightly so you know historically hasn't been a very good actor you know on the global stage so it's really important that not only are we the leading voice in our industry, but that we're bringing the industry along with us and improving those perceptions and helping people understand that they can have affordable homes built with green cement and green concrete and, you know, change the, the carbon output of, of an industry. It's really exciting, just as an aside, we've just 3D printed a school in Malawi. It takes 12 hours to build the walls. So the, the way that we use the concrete is there's absolutely zero waste. So you know exactly how much you need. You know where the houses are going to be. They're going to be affordable. The school can be built um, in sort of sections and pods so it can expand. And that means there's sanitation. That means girls are going to school. So girls are getting educated, which has a huge impact on the world. And it means that we're just allowing people to have a, a you know, a dignified life without causing you know a lot of problems to the planet so I'm super excited about that you can probably tell there's lots of solutions that, that we're rolling out and it's all about getting them to scale now. Uh, yeah that's so inspiring there's so many cool things that you said there about beauty and beauty in the built environment I mean like I, I absolutely agree it's the type of TV show that I watch as architecture shows just like and well Besides my neighbor's house, there's a lot of beauty in the, in the built environment. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I hope your neighbors don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, World, World Economic Forum, you know, they've got really, really engaging video content, you know, taking like simple ideas and, and you know, communicating them really well. Um, I, I suppose, you know, going, going to channels, is the assumption also then that you're going to be working a lot more in, in something like LinkedIn? I mean, yes, definitely. We use LinkedIn much more than any other channel at Lavarge Holcim, but I'm quite keen to change that. So I think we need a better balance. I mean, sort of going back to the, your, your point about the B2B and B2C, what I've seen from the kind of content before I came on board, it was just that very kind of corporate we're delighted to announce. Uh, we're proud to be a partner of. We're, you know, it's like, when would you go down the pub and say to someone, oh, I'm delighted to announce, you know? Um, so I, I mean, maybe some people do. I don't know. It's fine. But I, I, I just want us to get away from that very corporate speak. And just because you're on LinkedIn, it doesn't mean that you have to. Um, you know, it's still about engaging. It's still, still thumb-stopping content. You've got to grab people's attention. And uh, that, that is platform-wide. People don't have much time. We're competing with everything. You know, um, people's time is so precious. So it's up to us to respect that and deliver a message that is useful or entertaining or, you know, I didn't know that or I can't wait to tell someone this. Or um, And I think... We, you know, we are also on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but perhaps 
not in the in the way that we should be. So that's another really exciting thing for me, um, just having come on board eight weeks ago, that there's so much opportunity and we've got, you know, good established channels, we've got really lot of followers, we've got fantastic 80,000 employees around the world who are really engaged and, and they can help us, but we have to help ourselves and to deliver, you know, authentic and useful content that can delight and engage without saying I'm delighted. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I often uh, you know, speaking to customers about content strategy and uh, and find you know, they, they want content about themselves. And so often I need to break the news to them that nobody cares about you. You need to tell stories that are actually interesting. So talking about breaking breaking the mold and, and, and social media channels, are you going to go as, as kind of different and use something like Clubhouse? So our Chief Sustainability Officer has just had her debut on Clubhouse. So that's quite exciting. But um, I've got to be honest, like when Clubhouse launched, they had such a great launch strategy, apart from only being available on iOS. That's fine. I'm an Android girl, so there we are. But um, what what I've seen is that that huge peak is now kind of dipping and it's really hard to keep up that level of content. But what it's done is really put fire in the belly of other tech companies to really um, invest in audio. So I think, you know, Facebook Audio, which recently launched, is much more interesting for us because we've already got a defined audience there. And I know from my experience working with Facebook, when they launch a new product, they absolutely set the algorithms to reward you for using it. So you can get further with less if you take advantage of, you know, new products in the pipeline from from big tech. And, um, you know, podcasts obviously really taking off and there's lots of different ways to share them. But yeah, I mean, our chief sustainability officer, Magali, she, uh, sorry, sustainability, she's on our executive committee. She really loved doing the clubhouse experience, but she said it was very draining. Um, and I think that is something, you know, a lot of us have presented live and done live podcasts and it's not for everybody. So it's finding that's the, that's the issue for us is finding enough spokespeople. So we've got a broad and diverse range of voices, but that who are comfortable in those environments. So I'm actually just uh, embarking on doing some training for some of our staff. They're really great subject matter experts, but this is out of their comfort zone. And, you know, I totally understand that, but um, I'm going to hold their hand and drag them through out their comfort zone so that we're getting our, our voice heard across audio platforms as well as visual. Well, there was another great tip from you around using the new features in Facebook. So uh, this uh, podcast has been filled with, uh, with great tips. So I'm going to end off with one last question. The question I always end off with is uh, what advice would you give your younger self if you were able to do that? Oh, uh, Keep those green flash Dunlops. You're gonna what you're gonna want them when you're older. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I would just say keep going, keep smiling. There are ups and downs. That's life, but just keep going because honestly, I couldn't be. I'm in a very good place right now. I haven't always been. I think everybody goes through ups and downs, but everything you you know everything makes you who you are. So you're learning and and growing, and even though it might feel really tough. Just be kind to yourself and keep keep going and, yeah, keep smiling. I said that about 10 million times now. So I think that's the advice <laughs> I give myself. I'm trying to, my youngest, my previous self to, like, maybe hear that through some sort of 
time warp. <laughs> Oh, well, awesome. Thanks so much, Alice. Uh, it's been so awesome having you on Digital Surfing today. Uh, really appreciate you taking our time to chat with us. Um, your journey's been absolutely interesting. And I really do think that, you know, I'm going to go back and, and re-listen to this recording because uh, there are some amazing tips you've given today. So thank you so much. Oh, that's really kind of you. Well, thank you for having me. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Great questions. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.